Okay, uh, we are jumping into our <clears throat> kind of a standalone lesson today uh, that Scott Bucher specifically asked if I would teach. So uh, I'm happy to do that. He decided he'd pick a nice easy topic for me to talk about, um, which is the Christian's relationship to the Old Testament law. Um, and uh, obviously, as you guys have been working through the Old Testament together, um, I, I have not been in here uh, in here with you. Um, but how Christians relate to the Old Testament law is a subject that uh, has caused a lot of consternation, and uh, a lot of Christian people have different perspectives on how we relate to the Old Testament law, and yet it's an, it's an important one. Uh, how we relate to the Old Testament law is crucial. How do we, how do we come to the first five books of our, um, of our Old Testament, and, and how do we learn from them? How do we apply them? How do we make sense of them? Um, what, what do we do with God's law as, as Christian people? Uh, and so really, as we, as we walk through this uh, time this morning, uh, my goal this morning is really to, uh, I, I hope to offer you help when you consider uh, the Old Testament law. I hope to help you. Um, I don't want to either confuse or frustrate you. Uh, so I, I'm aware that this, uh, this is going to be kind of an intense run-through, so um, that's part of the, maybe the frustration part. There's going to be a lot, of, a lot of information this morning. Uh, so I hope you had like a double dose of your uh, coffee of choice or whatever and that you're feeling awake this morning because uh, we are going to move through a lot of things. It's one of the reasons I decided to use uh, PowerPoint is because there's a lot of passages. I know if we were flipping to all of them, it'd be easy to get lost. So I've tried to help you out a little bit um, with that, um, but I really am hopeful that this morning will be helpful um, for you, um, whether I say something new or I just uh, confirm things that you've thought for a while about the Old Testament law. And secondly, uh, this morning, as much as possible, uh, we want Scripture to, to determine how we understand this topic, right? So when it comes to the Christian's relation to the Old Testament law, um, we want Scripture to be our guide. So not, a, not our tradition, and in some senses, not even our, um, our theological positions, right? Theological positions ought to come from Scripture, um, but a lot of times our theological traditions um, or understandings end up uh, informing Scripture instead of the other way around. And so we're going to look at a lot of Bible passages um, that I hope um, will, um, will lead you to this main understanding. Uh, so God's good, holy, and righteous law, given in the first five books of the Old Testament, was fulfilled by Christ and is no longer binding on us today. It is God-breathed and profitable necessary for us to understand God and his world. All right, so that's our, that's our big idea, and there's a lot of things in that big idea, but we're going to try to, we're going to, try to get to them. Okay, uh, so when, when we start talking about law, uh, a lot of times we use the word law or the law of God in a variety of, a variety of ways. When, when some people say the law of God, uh, they mean the Ten Commandments. All right, so people say the law, and what comes in their mind is the Ten Commandments. Uh, sometimes when people say law, they have in mind the first five books of the Bible, um, which is kind of the biblical use of the word law. Um, and in fact, the first five books of the law um, are ref uh, of, of the Bible are referred to as law, um, even in the Jewish breaking up of the Old Testament. Um, so law or Torah. Um, so some people might think of the first five books of the Bible. Um, some people say law and they think any rule or command from God. So the law of God and you just think anything that God says we have to be or do. All right. So when we say the law of God, uh, we need to be aware that we may not always be talking about the exact same thing. And when we talk about the law of God this morning, we are going to be focusing on the law of God as revealed in the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay. So typically, unless I, unless I clarify, um, when I say law, I'm talking about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay. When we talk about law today. Um, within that law, there are over 600 commands. All right, so it's not a small amount of commands that are found in the first five books uh, of the Old Testament. And some of these commands uh, we, might, we might look at and we, and we think that's kind of, um, I don't know, like unusual is the nice word uh, to use. Weird might be uh, more what you're actually thinking um, when we think about some of these laws. Right? Exodus 34, 26, the best of the first roots of your ground you shall bring in the house of the Lord your God. Um, fine with that. Uh, and then the second part, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk, right? And if you're thinking as you're doing your read through the Bible uh, in your year, you hit that verse and you're going, yeah, bring, bring first fruits. That's great. Uh, wh what is with the cooking instructions? You know, like what is this doing here? And as a, as a Christian, what am I supposed to do with that sentence? You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. 
Why, why not? And why would you do that in the first place? I don't know, but like, what's going on in this verse? We just think that sounds so foreign to us. That, that, sounds, that sounds unusual. It sounds, it sounds weird, all right? Uh, and, it's not, and it's not the only one. Uh, so some of you men, um, I won't point out any, any names, but Leviticus 13, 40 to 41, if a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald. There you go. That's, that's clarification for you. Um, good news, he is clean, all right? And if a man's hair falls out from his forehead, he has baldness of the forehead, all right? Uh, so some of you, a little receding hairline there. But um, good news, he is clean. But if there's uh, on the bald head or the bald forehead a reddish-white diseased area, it's a leprous disease breaking out in his bald head or his bald forehead, and you're no longer clean, all right? And we read that and we just go, why is the Old Testament telling us about baldness? And why is some baldness clean and some baldness unclean? And what exactly is baldness of the forehead? How far does that go back? Like, what's going on in this verse, right? Um, so there are these commands that we look at and we just go, I, I, we don't naturally uh, understand what, it, what is happening here. There's, there's other commands uh, in, in the law that we just disobey all the time, right? We disobey, and you know this, right? You disobey the law of God all the time. You're chronically disobeying God's law, all right? Leviticus 19, 27. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. I'm pretty sure I marred the edges of my beard just the other day when I was trimming it, right? Uh, you shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord, right? And there's, there are people that chronically disobey Leviticus 19, 27, right? Uh, we disobey God's law. Right? The law of God revealed in Genesis through Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 14, 8, I am so glad that I break this part of the law of God. Right? And aren't you too? Uh, the pig, because it parts the hoof but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat and their carcasses you shall not touch. And I love me some good bacon. Um, the other day I had the best pork chop I have probably ever had in my life. It was tremendous. Uh, and I'm so thankful uh, that I could enjoy this pig. But, but enjoying pig, if you're someone who also likes bacon and pork chops and hams, uh, you have disobeyed the law of God in that sense, right? You've, you have done what God said not to do, which is you have touched and you have eaten. So what do we do about this law of God? On the other hand, there are parts of the law of God that are regularly taught for Christian behavior. So what I'm, what I'm trying to set up in introduction is there are a whole variety of thoughts and approaches to the Old Testament law. Um, some of these that you might share um, and some of these you might think. Um, Exodus 20, 13, um, found smack dab in the middle of our Ten Commandments, you shall not commit murder. And we say this is something that we teach um, uh, we teach for um, right behavior. Leviticus 19:18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So there might be times as you're reading through your Old Testament and you hit Leviticus 19:18, and by this point you've read through a variety of laws, some of which you understand and some of which you have no idea what they're there for. And so when you get to that last sentence, it's like a breath of fresh air. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you're like, ah, good, like something I can relate to, something that sounds like, this, this sounds like something that's doable, and this is a law I like. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to go ahead and, and apply that and live that out. So as a Christian, um, I'm going to go ahead and love my neighbor as myself. All right. Um, the, the difficulty is when, when we come through Genesis through Deuteronomy, what can happen if we don't have a clear understanding of what the law is for and what it's doing, uh, then, then we end up finding sections of our Bibles that we go, that's just weird, so I kind of, I'm going to set that aside, um, or this is a part that I, I don't see any way that I can obey that, so I'm just going to go ahead and set that aside, and we find ourselves hunting for like, give me some like, ooh, love your neighbors yourself, I'm going to grab onto that, right? Which means that you're going to be skimming over a whole bunch of verses that you're going to say, these, these don't really make a lot of sense or aren't super meaningful to me, and the hopes that you're going to find a nugget buried in there somewhere that connects to you in 2017. And that's a dangerous way to read your Bible. It's an unhelpful way to read your Bible. Um, and and it, what it does to us uh, is that we end up losing um, five books that are breathed out by God and are intended to benefit you and profit you. So as we talk through this, morning, through this this morning, what I hope is uh, that you'll be able to look at your Old Testaments, um, and particularly the Old Testament law, God's law, um, in a way that makes sense of it, 
um, and that lets you apply um, all that God wants you to apply in the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay, So uh, God's good, holy, and righteous law is given in the first five books of the Old Testament, and it was fulfilled by Christ, and it's no longer binding on us today. It is God-breathed and profitable, necessary for us to understand God and his world. And now we're, now we're diving in for some thoughts for you to consider, all right? The, the first thing I hope you'll consider as you think about the Old Testament uh, and you uh, is, that, is that the first five books of the Bible, the law, they are a unity. They, they are a whole, all right? The, when we say the law of God, um, it, is, it is a comprehensive unit. It is, it is a whole, all right? Um, and when I say this, uh, what, I, what I mean is that there are some um, good Christian people um, and you would know their names, and I, I, I know who some of the people are that I'm disagreeing when I say this, um, but in order to try to get the Mosaic Law to be applicable, they try to break the Mosaic Law up into three different parts. All right? um, so they would say there's a part of the Mosaic Law that was a moral law, and they'd say timeless truths um, that, that are connected to God's intention for human behavior, such as love your neighbor as yourself. So they would say within the law, there's this moral law, and that's applicable to all people at all times, um, and so when you're reading the law, that's what you should be looking for is the moral law. So they'd say there's the moral law. There's also the civil laws. So that's um, part of the Jewish legal system, um, how it works to be um, a Jewish person within legal society. And the third part um, that's often um, that people would say exists within the law is the ceremonial law, right? So a moral law, a civil law, and a ceremonial law, the ceremonial law being sacrifices and, and cleanness and uncleanness and, and those kind of things, okay? That's a popular way of trying to break up the law and try to explain which parts are for you and which parts aren't for you. Um, the, the problem, I think, um, within that uh, is that right after Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, ooh, some people would say moral law applies to us today, let's go ahead and do that. The problem with that is that along comes verse number 19, right? And everyone knows Leviticus 19.19, right? No, um, we, we probably don't. So uh, you love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and we go, yes, I, I'm connected to that. Uh, and then you shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two different kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Right? This is the next verse. Right? So some of you uh, who are farmers in here, or if you have... I guess a garden, I mean, a, a lot of this ag agrarian society was fields out behind their house. Um, multiple kinds of seed in one field, that's a no-go, according to the Old Testament law. Um, a garment of cloth made of two different kinds of material, mm -mm, can't do it. So everyone in here who's wearing some kind of polyester or some other kind of blend, um, you're, you're breaking God's law. So we read, love your neighbor as yourself, and we go, oh good, that's, that's moral law. We read Leviticus 19, 19, and, and all of a sudden it's saying something that we go, this is totally disconnected from my life. But where in Leviticus do we see this breakup of love your neighbor as yourself is what you should do, but Leviticus 19, 19, you don't have to do that. Where, where in Leviticus do you see that disunity? You see in our, in our Old Testaments, um, it, it flows perfectly well from love your neighbor as yourself to this verse. Uh, in, in Moses' mind, in the Holy Spirit's mind, there's not a dichotomy between verses 18 and 19. There wasn't this transition to, oh, and by the way, we're going to leave behind moral law and now talk about something else, right? Uh, the law, is, the law is, a, is a whole. What, what evidence do we have that we should view Leviticus 19.18 differently than 19.19? Because I don't think we find it within the text itself, all right? Um, what scriptures clearly divide the law into moral, civil, and ceremonial terms? And I think you won't find it, neither in the Old nor in the New. Because if you go to the New Testament, um, you would find Paul using the word law 119 times. That's a fair amount of times, right? Uh, every single time Paul uses the word law, it is always singular. It's never plural, right? And what I think that points us in the direction to is that the law is a unit, Right? So for us to try to piecemeal it out uh, into these various divisions, I, I don't think that best matches what we see uh, in Scripture. I don't think that, that's the best way to explain what the law is. The law is, is a unit, it is a whole. All right? And it's a whole that came uh, both with commandments and it also came with penalties. Right? So if we wanted to hang on to some of the law's commandments, we should also hang on to um, the, the penalties that were enforced with those commandments. But nobody wants to do that. 
because nobody wants to stone their, their rebellious child, right? So we go, uh, let's go ahead and take these principles, children should obey, but the commandment, the, the, the penalties part, well, we don't want to enforce that part. But, but in the Old Testament, they didn't have that option. They didn't have the option to divorce the consequences from, from, the, from the commands, all right? Because the law is a whole, all right? Same thing with the promises. Uh, the commandments and the promises and the punishments, they all come together in one glorious whole. So I think that scripture never divides the law, and instead it continually refers to the law as a whole. And certainly if you're an Israelite, you couldn't divide the law into moral, civil, and ceremonial because it was just as immoral, right? So think about this, and even the con trying to use the word moral is, is, I think, a little sketchy, because it would be just as immoral if you were an Israelite to eat pork as it is to commit adultery, right? Like both of those things are violating the law of God, as in you're, you're being immoral. You're, you're doing what God says not to do. So just like God says don't commit adultery, he also says don't eat pork. It, those are both moral, right? Whether you obey God or disobey God, that's an issue of morality. So for the Israelite, they certainly couldn't have divided these commands up into, well, that one is for morality and that one's not. No, you have to keep all of these civil and ceremonial um, laws. Um, they're all connected to morality. So I think the Old Testament law is a comprehensive whole, all right? Uh, secondly, I think we should consider the purposes of the Mosaic law. What is the Mosaic law? Um, what is it for? And I think there are a variety of things that the law is for um, that can help us as we think about um, how we relate to it as Christians. Um, there was a national function to the Mosaic law. Uh, there were laws that were set up to, to govern Israel, and it set up Israel as a nation quite unlike any other nation around them. Right? And that's important to understand. When you read the law, these are, this is a law given to a, a nation a national people about how they should live and how they should act, all right? And it's a, it, they were laws that set up their interpersonal relationships and their business uh, and their government, right? All of these things in the Old Testament law, um, they, they have national implications for you um, as, as an Israelite. Um, you're not an Israelite, but I'm saying if you were an Israelite, it would have a national, um, a national function. There's also a, a covenantal function to the Old Testament law. Um, so the, the Mosaic Covenant... Um, it, it administered uh, on the members of the nations of Israel the blessing of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants or the curses for not obeying the covenant. So the, the law is connected to the, the covenant of, uh, that God made um, with Abraham and with Moses. Um, and the reason I say that is, is that I would argue that the law is not a statement of God's will for people of every age and every place. And that's important. Um, that the Torah is not a statement of God's will for people of every age and every place. All right? The law instead was the administrative obligations brought on Israel as a nation. They had sanctions of life and death and blessing and curse. Without the Mosaic Covenant, then there is no law. All right? So you can put those things together in your mind. Old Testament, Old Covenant, Mosaic Covenant, law, they, they go together. All right? And in the Old Testament, the law consisted of um, God's requirements of the covenant with Israel. And if they obeyed, then what would happen? If they obeyed the law, they, what would happen? They'd be blessed. And if they disobeyed, they'd be cursed, right? Um, so there is this covenantal agreement. God says, I, I make these promises to you. If you will do these things, I will bless you. If you don't do these things, I will curse you. And he makes, these, he makes promises to them on the basis of whether they're going to obey the law or not. All right. Um, the law also has a teaching function. All right. Uh, we could go to the New Testament. Uh, so Romans 7, you don't have to flip there if you don't want to, but uh, you could jot it down. Romans 7, uh, verse number 7. The law had a teaching function. Uh, Paul says in Romans 7, 7, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. If I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. Right? The law was a teacher, and it taught the Israelites what sin was. And Paul says, if it hadn't been for the law, I wouldn't, even, I wouldn't have even known what sin was. The law had a teaching function. All right? um, so it, it taught about sin. It taught about the sinfulness of man um, that, that the Israelites and we uh, would not have known without the law. Right? Uh, Romans uh, 3.20, kind of the same point. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Right? So the law was not about justification since, Paul says, through the law comes, do you know what he says in Romans 3.20? Through the law comes what? The knowledge of sin. Right? The law was intended to bring knowledge. And the knowledge was that 
humankind, um, both Israelite and Gentile, are sinners, right? There is a teaching function. And because what it taught was that we are um, sinners, it also had a condemning function to it, all right? So because we learn that we are sinners, uh, instead of being justified, uh, there's the Romans 3.20, instead of being justified, we stand condemned. Because the law says, you must do this, and our rebellious hearts say, no, not going to do that. And that leaves us condemned. So the law has a condemning function. And I would argue that that was part of what it was intended to do for the Israelites. But the reality is, if all we had was the law, then all we would know is condemnation. Right? If that's all we had was law, all we would know is you're a sinner who, who can't obey God's requirements. Right? So even in that, I, I am arguing for a, a um, that's a very specific understanding of law that says that law has its limitations. And I, I think we need to be able to say that kind of thing about God's holy and righteous and perfect law. You need to be able to say as a Christian person, the law has limitations. Um, without feeling that you are in any way insulting the law or belittling the law. And we're going to talk about some of those limitations in just a second. Uh, so we've, uh, we've considered uh, the, the unity of the Mosaic law, the purpose of the law being national and covenantal and teaching and condemning. Um, there is also a time period of the Mosaic law right, that I think we need to think about. There was a time that the law did not exist. Right? When, when did the law not exist? Yeah, okay, before Moses. Yeah, that's exactly right. So there's this whole time period. Until Moses, you don't have the law of God, right? Um, so there's a time when the Mosaic law did not exist. Uh, I would also argue that there was a time when the Mosaic covenant and the Mosaic law, when they came to an end, right? There was a beginning to this law, and I would argue there is an end point to this law. Matthew 27, 51 through 53, within the amazing story of Christ's crucifixion, there is a very obvious hint that, that what was required in the law has been permanently altered. Right? So Jesus cries out on the cross with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. And then this really interesting note. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Okay, from top to bottom. And that's pretty impressive because you're, we're probably talking about at least 12 inches of thickness of fabric, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to tear even several pieces of paper together at the same time, but to, but to tear 12 inches of solid fabric and to do it from top to bottom, this is clearly an act of God within, um, within the temple, right? Why does this happen? Um, why is this note in, in our Gospels that, that this veil um, was torn? What was the veil? What was it there for? Was, what was this curtain in the temple? Okay, separation, protection, from, from what? From where? Okay, greatness of God. Where, where is this curtain that, is, that has been ripped? Yeah, it's, it's, it's right at the Holy of Holies, right? Who's allowed to go in the Holy of Holies? According to the Old Testament law. The high priest. What does it mean that this, that this, this veil, this curtain, has been ripped in half? I think this is a super vivid object lesson at the moment Jesus dies that something has permanently been altered about the Old Testament law. Something has permanently changed, which is that no longer is it just the high priest who can enter into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. What has happened is that you and I can now fully and freely enter into the presence of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus' crucifixion, even at the moment of his death, something permanently changes. And it's illustrated in what, what would have been deadly for anyone um, living under Old Testament law to try to go into the Holy of Holies on their own is deadly. In fact, it could have even been deadly for the priests who were serving in there if they didn't follow all the right instructions and requirements and regulations, right? The point that when they walked into the Holy of Holies, what were they wearing around their ankles? A rope, right? Why do you have a rope? Because if you die, no one can go in and get you because what's going to happen to them? They're going to die, so we're going to have to be able to just reel you back out um, if, if you're a priest. Too. Now, that's pressure. I, I feel like there's a lot of pressure being a pastor, but that's a whole nother level of pressure, right? I hope I do this right. My, like, before you go in there, but like, better say goodbye to the wife and kids, and like, uh, you know, this could be it uh, if, if you have sinned in some way, right? That's a lot of pressure. But now that curtain has been ripped in half because anyone can enter in. So, so I think it's an object lesson um, that something has changed, something has, been, has come to an end, 
All right. Um, Hebrews 8, and I know this is, uh, this, I mean, lots of passages. If you want to um, write these down, you can, uh, you can look at them more yourself. And this is a longer passage. Um, Hebrews 8, 6 to 13. Um, but try to listen, and if you need to go look at it again uh, later, do that. This is an important point that there was a time the Mosaic Law began and a time when it ended. Um, in Hebrews 8, it says, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So when I say there's something better than the Mosaic law, um, that's just being biblical, right? Like the writer of Hebrews, whoever that was, he said it first. There's something better about this new covenant. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, right? If, if there was no problem with the old covenant, with our Old Testament, we wouldn't need a new, right? So. Uh, He finds fault with it, he says. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I show no concern for them, declares the Lord. He's talking about the Mosaic law, the, the covenant that was given on Mount Sinai. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws where? into their minds and write them on their hearts. That's different than the Old Testament law, right? And this is a different location of where you'll put this law. It's not on tablets of stone. He says, in their minds and their hearts, I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. All right, uh, verse 13, and speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's pretty strong language, don't you think? To say that this old covenant is obsolete. Um, That's remarkable. I think there is a time when the Mosaic Law began and a time when it comes to an end. The Law of Moses, which is at the heart of the Mosaic Covenant, came to an end as a law code at the death of Christ. Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, right? What does it mean when it says he's the end to the law? Um, Is it that he is the goal of the law? I think there's probably an element of of that, but he's also the fulfillment of the law. He is the end of the law. He's what the law has been pointing to, and now he has brought that to an end, all right? When Jesus came, he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it, and once the law is fulfilled, We now listen to the one who fulfilled it instead of continuing to listen to that Old Testament law as law code. Okay? Um, So uh, that's Romans 10.4. Christ is the end of the law. All right. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3, 4 through 11 is another uh, longer passage that um, you need to be familiar with if you're thinking through how you relate to the Old Testament law um, and that you need to know um, is there to help us. Um, 2 Corinthians 3, 4, the confidence we have through Christ is toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Um, He made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now listen to this. If the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, what is he talking about when he says carved on letters on stone? He's talking about Ten Commandments, right? And what he calls it is the ministry of death. Ten Commandments are a ministry of death. That's how we need to think about the Ten Commandments. They were were the ministry of death. And and do you know how much glory came with those Ten Commandments? There was so much glory in this ministry of death that the Israelites couldn't even handle looking at Moses' face. Just the reflection of Moses having been with this glorious word caused his face to shine uh, in a way that that they they couldn't even handle looking at. Right? So when we call it the ministry of death, um, when we say that it's ending, do not miss or do not misunderstand that this is somehow an inglorious, unholy, or unrighteous law. It was so wonderful that even just the reflection of Moses they couldn't handle. Right? And, and so if that's what happened, if his face was glowing because of its glory, and it was going to be brought to an end, you see that in verse 7 if you're there? This, this ministry of death was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Right? The law was always intended to have an ending point. Right? That's Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians 3. 
And, and so if it was glorious to have the ministry of death, he says, how much more glory, if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, then the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. All right, what, what we have now is even far better than what Moses had um, in the Old Testament. And it was glorious. Indeed, he says, in this case, what once had glory has come to have, comparatively speaking, he says, no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end, right? And what is, what is Paul talking about? And he says it's brought to an end. I'm arguing he's talking about the Mosaic law. It was brought to an end. If that came with glory, then much more what is permanent will have glory. Okay? So there was a beginning point and there was an end point to the Mosaic law. And Paul continually argues that the Mosaic law no longer binds Christians. Okay? Um, which... I mean, I know, I know I'm saying this. It's not as if any of you disagree with me on this, right? That, that the Mosaic law no longer binds Christians because I, I can almost guarantee that none of you reserved yesterday for not having a single bit of work, right? I, I bet every one of you did some kind of work yesterday, which would be breaking the Old Testament law, right? If, if you were under the Old Testament, you cannot work on Saturday, right? Um, again, all of you polyester wearing, pork eating, like everyone agrees to some extent with me and function that we are, we are no longer under the Old Testament law. Um, and you should, you should know the freedom of that this is exactly what the New Testament continually argues is true, that we're no longer bound to the law. All right. Um, the law served a purpose that has come to an end. Uh, the Galatians 3.24 passage says the law was a guardian. Um, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll even just uh, read it because I want you to see um, that it, the law is not binding on us any longer, nor is it intended to be. Before faith came, Paul says in Galatians, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. And then three important words, until Christ came, right? That's, that's significant. Uh, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Okay? You are no longer under Mosaic law. You're no longer under Old Testament law. You are no longer under the requirements of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Again, I'm convinced according to our New Testaments, according to Paul, according to Galatians 3. Okay, so it's not just that we don't like some of these laws or that we think they're strange or we don't see how we could obey them. We have been freed from the Mosaic law because of the work of Christ, right? It's not just that we don't like these or that you don't want to be Jewish. It's that Christ has freed you from these laws, okay? Um, so that's, uh, that's Galatians 3.24. The Christian is not under the law, Romans 6.14. Sin shall not be a master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace, all right? Um, there we go. You are not under law. Um, Paul argues uh, that, uh, why do I have this here? I don't know. Um, but uh, the Christian has died to the law. Uh, Romans 7 uh, is, a, is an important question, uh, an important, another important passage for you to understand. Because uh, in Romans 7, it uses the comparison of uh, a husband and wife. All right? uh, and it says that a wife is bound to her husband by law, right? by covenant, by, by promise. Until when? According to Romans 7. Till a husband dies. But once a husband's dead, then what? She's, she's free. Now, Paul's using that as an object lesson, saying um, if, you, if uh, while her husband's living, she's joined to another man, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law. So that she's not an adulteress, even though she's remarried. All right? Um, that's an object lesson for what happens in verse number four, because he says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead. Verse 6, now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Right? So just like a wife is free to remarry if her husband dies, because she's no longer bound by that old covenant, that old promise, you are free from this Old Testament law, because you have been bound to something new. All right? Um, Paul argues that, oh, here's, here's 1 Corinthians 9.20. Paul was not under law, right? He says, to the Jews, I became a Jew that I might win the Jew. To those who are under law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, right? Paul did not view himself, despite all of his pharisaical training, as being underneath the law any longer, right? Um, 
The reality is, and I need to um, move even quicker, the reality is that we can't even go to the temple and sacrifice animals even if we wanted to today, right? You couldn't live Old Testament law even if you tried today. It's actually not even physically possible uh, to obey Old Testament law still today. So uh, if, you're, if you're thinking with me this morning, maybe you're starting to ask, well, wait a second, it, does God change his laws, right? If it was the law of God, does God, Does God change his law? The answer is yes. Yes, God does. He does. Um, I just taught uh, from the book of Acts uh, to our kids last week. So, I mean, I hope we're all tracking. And again, this is not being uh, upsetting or confusing to anyone. And if you have any children, I hope you're not upset that this is what they're they're hearing in seeds, right? because I, I, just taught from, I just taught from Acts, and uh, in, and now, I, uh, and now I can't find it. Um, I just taught in, I thought it was 13, but it's not. Um, it's when Peter gets the vision uh, and the sheet comes down to him. Here it is. Uh, Acts 11. Sorry. Um, Acts 11. Uh, Peter's having a vision and in a trance he sees something like a great sheet being let down from heaven. Uh, and, a, and he looks at it closely and he sees all of these unclean animals. And he hears a voice saying, rise, Peter, kill and eat. You guys know the story, right? There was a man named Cornelius who was seeking after God. God sent an angel to said, go talk to Peter. Um, they're on their way to talk to Peter, and Peter's up on the top of the house uh, getting ready for lunch. He's hungry, and he has this vision of these animals coming down in a sheet. But they're all unclean animals. And the voice he hears says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. All right? And, you, and Peter says what? What does Peter say? He says, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Does Peter know who he's talking to in the vision? Does he know who's telling him, rise, Peter, kill and eat? Yes. And he says to the Lord, what does he say? No. And what's his reasoning? I've never had something unclean. At no point have I ever had something unclean. How many times does he have that exact same vision? Three times this is repeated. The sheet comes down, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter goes, "Uh uh-uh, no way. I have no idea what that pig tastes like, but I don't want it, right? So sheet goes back up in the air. Sheet comes back down. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter goes, no way. I'm not going to do that because I, I am a Jew. I don't, do, I don't break, I, I don't eat unclean things, right? What, what God is trying to teach Peter is that something has changed. What God wants Peter to know and, and then God makes this point explicitly clear in this passage. He says, what I have called clean, do not continue calling unclean. What, was that a change in God's law? And the answer is yes. They went from you may not eat these animals as unclean to you can eat everything that you want to eat. That's a change in the law of God. And it was so fundamental that Peter realized that what was happening is that these men who were coming from Cornelius, who wanted to hear the gospel, he was free to go with them. Because as a Jewish man, he would not have gone with these Gentiles. He would not have gone to Cornelius's house. He, he wouldn't have even considered sharing the gospel with these people. And the point of this vision was not just that these animals are not unclean, but that a whole group of people that would be you and me, Gentiles, are not unclean in God's sight. This is major gospel stuff that Peter has to, re, he has to learn that something has changed. And this Old Testament law that said there, there are these chosen people and everyone else is on the outside, that's changed. Right? So this is not just about pork. This is about us as a people having full and free access to God. Right? This is a major change. So does God change? Uh, his loss? And the answer is yes. And where we're going today with the kids is Acts chapter number 15, right? And in Acts chapter number 15, you have this Jerusalem council because there are these men who say, you have to keep the law of Moses. That's what's going on in Acts 15. You must obey the law of Moses. This is the question today. How do we relate to the law? And in Acts 15, there were people saying, you, you relate to the law of Moses by obeying it. And what was the result in Acts 15? 
thankfully, for the sake of the gospel and for all of us, they said, that's no longer true. We, we know you're no longer bound by this law. In fact, uh, Peter stands up and he argues in verse number 10 of Acts 15, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Okay, uh, the, the Mosaic law was a yoke that could not be kept. And so we don't need to try to live underneath that yoke um, and neither did the Jews, okay? Um, our time has just flown by and I wanted to have lots more time than I do for questions and I'm probably halfway done. Um, Okay, let's ask some questions, and I will talk with Scott, and maybe Scott will consider letting me have one more week since I'm kind of right at the halfway point. So, <laughs> because uh, I think some of my application stuff will help with some of the questions, um, but we can get to that next week too. So, so yeah, fire away. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm going to disagree with you. Okay. <laughs> Uh-huh. Um, or God's law, uh, there was a time before God's law existed. God's law, the Ten Commandments, based on his character, which is eternal. So it was never okay to murder. It was never okay to not love your neighbor. And, and, and I think, you know, I'm a simple guy. And thankfully, Jesus taught in a very simple way, where he said in Matthew 22, 37 and 40, that love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor like yourself. Uh-huh. And all this, we're doing that, we're fine. So it's like, you know, what's the principle behind some of these laws? That's what we got to look at. Are we, is the principle loving God? Is the principle loving our neighbors? And, and so for me, the division of between moral, uh, ceremonial, civil, and just didn't just right up. Okay, yeah. sure. So uh, I get that. Um, and what, what I am hoping to encourage you to think about uh, is not that God's character has somehow changed. Because what you want to do is you want to tie God's character to the Mosaic law. And what I'm trying to argue uh, is, that, is that the Mosaic law is not the full expression of the character of God for every time and every place. Right? Yeah, and I agree. So yeah. how we come to the Old Testament to, uh, and again, we are going to get here in application, does the Mosaic Law teach us about God's character? And I'm going to emphatically say yes. All right, we haven't gotten to the second part of my, of my main argument, which is uh, that this law is God-breathed and profitable, and that it is necessary for us to understand God in his world. Right? So we haven't gotten to, the, to part two, which is that it is necessary for us to have this Old Testament law if we're going to understand who God is and what he wants to happen in his world. Right? Um, but even having, having said that, how we get to that understanding, uh, if it involves us thinking that somehow we must place ourselves still underneath this Old Testament law, uh, I think gets to even the point of danger. Um, and we can play that out. Um, again, if, if Scott will let me teach next week, then I think I can show you ways that um, if we're not careful with how we look at this Old Testament law and how we even explain it to others, um, we set ourselves and them up um, for wriggling actually out of God's character. Um, because God's, God's law to the Israelites um, comes to them at a particular time and a particular place as a nation who is underneath God, God's rule. Um, and so there are requirements within this law um, that actually find their fulfillment and their endpoint in Christ. And so we are no longer underneath this same law code. That doesn't mean it was a bad law code. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's in, that uh, that it's somehow unrighteous or or anything else. Uh, it's just that I, what I'm trying to say is we are no longer underneath this same law code because of what we have in Christ. So I agree with the point that before Moses um, was there still immorality. Yeah, sin still reigned from Adam through Moses. And a simple way to prove that is how do we know that sin reigned from Adam to Moses before there even was a law? Everybody did what? Everybody died. Right? So clearly sin was reigning. There was such a thing as right and wrong. So you don't have to have the Ten Commandments to have there being a breaking of God's character. Right? Um, 
So I, I, I understand what you're saying of like, well, let's look for the moral parts because uh, you know, that makes sense. Um, and maybe we'll talk more about that next time if we can. Okay, and here's what I would, I just, here's what I would say. Um, you're, that's binding because you are under a new law, not because you're underneath the Mosaic law. There is a new law that says you may not murder and you may not commit adultery. And it's the law of Christ, which we haven't had time to get to, but we are under law, right? It's just, it's a new law. It's not this old law. So are there parts of the old law that are repeated in the new law? Absolutely. Um, what, what I'm hoping to help you think about is, I, I think that this old law is one whole entity uh, and that it has entirely been replaced by a new law and the new law is what determines whether you are righteous or unrighteous, obeying God or not obeying God, not this old law. So the parts that are repeated, absolutely. But it needs to be repeated in this, in this new law, in the new law code. Our, our New Testament. All right, Kirk. I was going to agree with you, but so. Okay. Because when you say the law, it's a capital L, and you're saying the law is a unit, which is, you know, you're defining what the law is. I would say before the Mosaic law, God had laws. Sure. So there were laws before that. And so there are, God has different laws. And so he has a law for specific people in a nation at certain times, just like you said. So I think, but before that, again, there's also things where that law that applies to non-Jews. Absolutely. And laws that still apply to, according to God's character throughout time. So the question is whether we're bound by the law as defined in the scripture applying to the Jews. Right. And so my, one thing I have a question for is would the law, uh, you said the law was changing or God changing the law, mm -hmm. the law as defined might still exist, except their status under that law perhaps would change. Okay. Is so. Okay, so good question. Uh, I would say, uh, so what you're saying is, are there some people that are still under Old Testament law? Is it possible that someone could be under Mosaic law? And I would argue no. I would argue that there are not people still today, post-Christ, people are not condemned for their breaking of the Mosaic law, would be my opinion. And again, and I was going to get to this next time, so I want to make sure I say this today. I, I realize um, I'm not speaking for, um, this is, this is my best understanding of the Old Testament law and us, us trying to apply it. There are lots of good Christian men that would disagree with how I have even phrased some of the things I've, I've said this morning. I understand that. Um, and that's part of the reason I don't want to be confusing or frustrating. I'm just saying we've got to get to um, as clear an understanding as we can of the Old Testament law. And, and so this is how I'm trying to help you get there and at least think about these things. Um, so that's kind of the caveat of there are lots of people that would that are good Christian people that disagree um, with how, I, how I'm saying this. And I understand that. Um, so when I answer the question, I don't think people are still condemned under the Old Testament law. I think there are people that would disagree with me saying that. Um, but I think post-Christ, uh, this new law is a, is a universal law. So whether Jew or Gentile, um, what, what people stand condemned before God to, today, I think it's on the basis of this new law and not the, not the old. So you're saying, could it, could it be status? I don't think it's status. I think that actually the old law came to an end point and is no longer in force. Well, I was looking at Matthew 5 where Jesus says, I did not came, come to change the law, but to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then it says it will not pass until the heaven and the earth pass away. Right. So, what, so what, do you, what do we do with that? Well, what we do with that is say this law is holy and righteous and good and it's profitable for you to study and know uh, it's still there. It's not as if this law is erased. Right? So Jesus didn't come to erase this law, uh, which is a reason that you should be reading Genesis to Deuteronomy. Right? It's not that this is no longer in our Bibles and it no longer has any significance. There is loads of significance in this Old Testament law. Right? Uh, it's just that it has been brought to its culmination in Jesus. So uh, whatever else you, heard, you have heard from me just in, in this morning, uh, and if we, if we go again next morning, I hope what you haven't heard is Genesis to Deuteronomy doesn't matter. That's the farthest thing from my mind. This is God-breathed and necessary for us to understand God uh, and his ways. We need this Old Testament law to understand God and to understand our salvation. Uh, it's just that we are not still obliged to obey what is required in, in the Old Testament uh, law. So, all right. Um, really, really quick, just to, to fill out that, that, that passage. And I just want to, I'll, like, maybe, maybe you can explain how, how it works. Because it says, um, it's not just um, 
um, to teaching other people, but doing is where it kind of passes. Right? Yeah. So it says, um, and this is why I think it's the separation is helpful, maybe not necessary, but helpful in regards to the different parts of law, because it's Christ said that anybody who teaches others to lack or annul the least of these laws and the same right. is considered least, right? Right. So it's, so it's not just uh, useful for teaching, but doing. Right. Um, and then same for teaching, but doing also the law, the law itself. Well, obviously it's not the ceremonial law, because or, 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 or that division of it, right? Uh-huh. Um, because there's a temple. Um, and Christ has fulfilled those things. Yeah. Um, but... But there's other, there's still a, a, a teaching and doing from that. Right. Um, and so, so obviously we don't need our righteousness by, we need our righteousness through Christ. Right. But he's still teaching people to, to do um, this, and, and, and the qualifier there being to the end, to the end of, until I have an earth pass away, I do have a new earth. Uh-huh. Right. right. That being the end of that. Right. So, so that, how, do you, how, do you, how do you not end up separating them to a degree if Jesus is saying that you must, that you, that you teach anybody not to do these things? Right. So uh, that's going to get into uh, that's going to get into kind of uh, next week. If I get to do this next week, how do we go about applying the law? Because I do think we need to know how to apply this Old Testament law. And if we don't, if I tell you, you don't have to find application in Genesis through Deuteronomy. If if there's nothing in there for you to apply, um, then I think I have violated what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. What, what I'm not saying is you don't have to apply things or there isn't anything to learn about God. I'm saying we need to find how we get to that point of application. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. And what I'm saying is we don't get to that point of application by going, um, well, let's figure out which ones don't really apply to us. We can discard those. Mm-hmm. Let's find the ones that sound like something we can do today. Let's apply that. I think there's a better way than that mm-hmm. um, that's still living out. Okay. All right. Uh, I hope your minds have been stirred at least a little bit. Um, I hope Scott Booker's okay with me teaching next week. And uh, hey, uh, all of the Bible is God's word, right? So whatever else you heard this morning, um, it is for us to live and understand and do. But how we get to that point is crucial, and it's at the heart of, I think, why Christians have struggled with what do I do with this Old Testament law, okay? All right.